Welcome again, everybody. Um, hey, you guys did it. It was daylight savings last night. Is that, that's not as big of a deal now that our phones like automatically switch, but we still might have a couple people that show up in a half an hour. And if they do, I will not say anything, and neither will you, okay? <laughs> we'll just kind of go with it. Um, is anybody in here old enough to remember one of these? If you put the picture on the screen... Know what I'm talking about there? Um, yeah, the, did anybody actually have one of those? Are you willing to even reveal yourself here? Okay. Not the old man. I'm not talking about the old man. Um, don't be silly. Come on. I'm talking about the first cell phones, the, the thing that literally looked like a brick. Like, could you imagine trying to talk on one of these? Or Oh, that does something there, doesn't it? Makes me a lot louder. Powerful. Um, man, uh, but that thing for its time was a breakthrough. Remember in some of the old movies where it's like, oh my goodness, they have a car phone. Look at that. Beverly Hillbillies. I remember that scene. It was pretty awesome. It's hard to believe because can you imagine TikToking with that thing? Um, and again, I'm talking about the phone, not the old guy. I mean, I guess, I guess you could. Um, he needs to go away. Goodbye, sir. Thank you very much for your service today. Um, I told you last week that today, if you were here, that today is going to be a technical uh, sermon. What do I mean by that? What does technical mean? Um, I sort of mean that in two different ways. There is a component of what I'm going to talk about that does talk about the ancient technology of the brick, not the brick phone, even though that feels as old to some of us as the ancient brick does. But uh, the, the other sense that I mean technical, what does a technical talk mean? that some details that I'm going to share today are important for us to know uh, as we wrap up, wrap, wrap up this section of Scripture, but it's going to require you to have some extra coffee in your bloodstream. So if you have not done that yet, or if you've only had decaf today, there's full caffeinated coffee over there, and there's parts of it. Maybe you can track with it better than I would be able to if I were sitting over there. But I would suggest getting some coffee if you don't have some. Um, plus, there's old Marge's Donut Den donuts over there if you want, which the kids don't mind that they're five days old. Um, you'll see a half-eaten donut of mine up front. I'm like, it's a little dry. <laughs> five days does something to a donut. But um, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about God. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into the text that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Lord, thanks again for... I just have to always say it, for giving us life, because there will be a day when you call us home, and there will be those on this side of that divide that will miss us a lot, but we get to live another day today, and we're blessed by it. We're blessed by the breath that we have, um, by the heartbeat that we have, even as we, many of us, um, long to see those who are in your presence now, uh, we're still glad we get to, to be here in this moment. So I pray that what I'll speak and say, again, will be from you. Um, you know, you made me the way I am, but I do ask that there won't be too many ADD moments. Amen. <laughs> um, Genesis 11 is where we're at. We've been working through the book of Genesis, uh, story of Genesis since chapter 1. And we find ourselves here. This is like the last moment before there's a shift in the story of Genesis. And so I'm really looking forward to 
uh, the, the coming uh, transition that we're going to make. But today, it's kind of the last story of these foundational stories that we get in the early chapters of Genesis. So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. So that's a technological advance. Then they said, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered all over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they, may, they will not understand each other. So the, the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So at a glance, the application to this talk, having just now heard the story, could appear very simple. Um, Don't build a tower high enough to try and get to God, and you're good. Which is crazy anyways, uh, from how we understand the universe to work now, right? But here's where I want to get a little technical with you. I want to go into the weeds a little bit. You may have been wondering, if you've been uh, here most of the weeks as we've been talking about Genesis um, over the past nine weeks as we've been doing this, um, who wrote this book? Where did it come from and, and why? Who wrote Genesis? We, we got our Bibles, we open it up, and then we just go. But who wrote it? And I've been waiting for the right time, literally since you know nine weeks ago, to discuss this, and I think that this is the right time to do that. And you'll see, as I come out of the weeds, why it is relevant to the story, and I think will touch your heart eventually. But I'm going to go into the weeds for a second. So traditionally, it is, was believed that Moses, uh, some of you have heard of Moses in the Bible, that he led God's people out of uh, slavery in, in um, Egypt, that Moses wrote all the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But more recently, in the last couple hundred years, um, there has been a, a few reasons why biblical scholars, people that study the Bible as their career entire life, think that not, that's not entirely the case, that it wasn't Moses in the desert that wrote all of those books at this one time. Um, let me share a few, few of those things, and this is, again, where I'm getting a little technical, so sip that coffee and track with me. Um, I'm going to bounce around for a minute. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, that's beyond where we're currently at, but um, it says, at that time the Canaanites were in the land, which must mean that it was written at a later time when they were no longer there. And so in Moses' case, that wouldn't have been, they would have been in, in the land at that time. In Genesis 36, verse 31, it refers, which refers to the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. You don't need to know where Edom is necessarily, but uh, 
the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites must have been written after the establishment of Israel's kingdom, which had their kings. You've heard of King David before, and that's long after David, or excuse me, long after Moses was alive on earth. The different names, this is an interesting one. I'm not going to dive into all of them, but the different names used for God in different periods of time show up in the different sections of Scripture. Um, I'm just peeling back a little bit of the like scholarly work that people do that I get to just copy-paste and talk to you about. But um, it talks about that it indicates that there were some of the parts of Genesis were written at different periods of time. Uh, the most convincing, I think, is if you, know, if you look at the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, that last one, uh, couldn't have been written by Moses because he literally wrote about his own death. So that would be quite difficult to do um, in that case. So now, why am I getting all technical about this? Why am I sharing those details with you? Um, because Genesis, it sort of presents itself. Um, it's a story. We're reading a story that weaves in and out, and it's going a certain direction, but presents itself more like a good documentary would. Um, Any documentary fans in here, like I love a a good documentary myself, Um, weaving different inspired stories um, at different times in Israel's history, and it would appear for uh, various reasons that these first 11 chapters that we're finishing up today... um, which at least would have been formed out of historical archives that Israel would have had, uh, as well as oral tradition, um, from that it would appear they were written around the time after Israel had been in a, the great devastation called the exile. So it was in 586 BC that the Babylonians, who were a global superpower, marched into Jerusalem. And I'm just skipping forward in the story here, but just to tell you about when these early stories probably would have been written on paper. They wouldn't have been starting fresh, but they would have been written um, as we, in the form that we have it today. After this superpower marched into God's people's holy city of Jerusalem, bulldozed their temple, which was the house of God. Um, I've been to that place. It's pretty incredible to see how these were real places. In real, anchored in real history, um, in a real land. Um, and the Babylonians, when these people swept in, um, they would have killed most of the able bodied men who would have posed a military threat to them, and they left many of the weak to starve to death in Jerusalem. I remember studying that um, a lot of the widows were left in Jerusalem to work the vineyards that the Babylonians would uh, make their wine from devastating. And the young, uh, they kidnapped much of Israel's young population, bringing them back to Babylon where they tried to brainwash them into Babylonian culture, um, pagan religions, and ideology. The book of Daniel, if anybody's ever read the book of Daniel, is um, you can see that they stripped uh, Israelites of their, their Hebrew names and gave them new names. So they're literally trying to de- strip their culture away from the Israelites and indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture. Everything about this period of time uh, was about the Babylonians dehumanizing God's people. 
this period of history, and the world is full of those stories, right? But this period of history, like I said, is uh, the period called the Great Exile. And it's believed by many scholars that the story in Genesis 11 that we're, we just read was written right after that. It was written down in the form that we have, um, hence Babel. They use even Babel in their story after that captivity. And if you were going to record the, a short and memorable account of such a horrific period of time, how might you do it? You might do it this way. Let's go back to verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Shinar is actually another way of saying Babylon. Some translations actually, just to make it easier, put Babylonia in place of Shinar there so the reader knows we're talking about Babylon. The, the plain of Shinar is actually another way to say that. And God's people had spent 70 years in captivity. It's fascinating, this period of time. So fascinating. So before we even get to the meat of the story that we're looking at today, this is a story about enemies. This is a story about Babylon. We, what we read further has to be understood as the things that the bad guys do that we should learn not to do. So this is for future generations of God's people to see that they shouldn't do as the people in Babel are doing. Verse 3. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used the bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, I don't really know what any of that means because I'm not a, a uh, what do they call them? Mason. There you go. You know who my grandpa was? And he helped build this church, which is kind of cool. Um, Many churches in the area, actually, but let's talk about bricks. So the Hebrew uh, root for the verb-noun pairing there that says, let us make bricks, is actually really unique in the Old Testament. Um, it only shows up in one other place in the Bible, and that's in Exodus 5, verse 7, which says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. So this is a story, it's, a, it's actually looking forward into the future of Israel's story, but it's reflecting back because of when it was written. This is a story of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, another bad guy, forcing the Israelites to be slaves and to find their own raw materials to meet their brick quotas. Anybody in here seen the Prince of Egypt before? Um, this is a direct connection between Egypt and the Tower of Babel. So we got like these two oppression stories in like three sentences <laughs> that are woven in to see brick is a trigger word for an Israelite. You hear brick, you think of 400 years of your people being enslaved by this empire of Egypt, which makes sense because in the ancient world, construction at least... Uh, at that scale basically requires slave labor. That is the most efficient way, perhaps the only way, to build things like a tower. So bricks equals oppressed people. 
What I'm trying to do, and what I'm trying to get all of us to do, is when we read the Bible, that we would have the same hyperlinks in our head, that we would have the same, like, okay, bricks, what does that mean? It means oppressed people. Verse 4. Then they said, come. So what are they going to do with those bricks? Come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So we just did the brick thing, how there's a connection to that. But this is, uh, there's another uh, reference here in, in the entire Bible, only, only one other that uses the same language of a city uh, in the sky that reaches towards the heavens, and it's described in Deuteronomy 9, verse 1. It says, Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the skies. Again, a people group limping out of exile, remembering their story now, also remembering a time when God told them to go into this promised land where there were cities that had walls up to the sky, tower to the heaven, wall to the sky, a little different, but in the Hebrew it's the same. We can use these stories to understand each other. Deuteronomy 9 is the story of the Israelites overtaking the wicked society of Canaan, and we read a little bit about that last week, to take hold of the promised land. This is a picture. This next picture is a picture of a ziggurat. It's an ancient temple in Babylon uh, that reaches up to the sky. So when the, when the authors of Genesis write this section, they're thinking of literally that tower. They're thinking of, and it's much higher than it looks, that tower of people that built this empire to glorify themselves, and they built it on the backs of people oppressively on the backs of people. This story is a story of oppressors and enemies of Israel woven into it. Babylon, Egypt, Canaan. This isn't just a story about bricks and towers. It's loaded. It's so beautifully loaded when you start to see it, when you start to learn about it. This is a story about evil people enslaving others to build empires for themselves. And what does God think about that? If that's the case, what comes next? Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see. God is spirit. God can see. Go have a bonfire and let that one blow your mind for a little bit. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. Genesis is full of moments when God saw something. And I hope in a couple weeks I get to share one of those moments that's my favorite in the whole Bible. Just a cliffhanger out there. But God is described as one who sees things. The Hebrew word for see here is ra'ah. It's used in Genesis 129 times. And in the whole Old Testament, well over a thousand times, is this word that God sees used in the Old Testament. The first use of this word, where does that happen? Where do you think? It's on the moment of creation when God creates and then he saw it was good. 
it says that he saw, he ra'ah, what he had created, and it was good. And we continue to be presented in this story that's unfolding before us in Genesis with a God who sees, evaluates, examines, and dwells within his creation. And as I keep reminding us, when God got to creating human beings in his image and in his likeness, the pattern was good the first five days. And when he got to the sixth day, when he created human beings, he called it very good. He saw it and called it very good. So what is God's reaction then? He, he saw what was happening. He's a God who sees. What is God's reaction in the story to the evil oppression and enslavement of people? Verse 6. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. It's interesting, they were afraid of being scattered. And the thing that scattered them was them trying to put themselves in God's place. It's ironic. Ooh, doesn't that happen to us? Another good bonfire story, bonfire processing. So the Lord scattered them there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. The empire was over. That is why it is, was called Babel, was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. God scattered the empire built on the backs of oppressed people. This was a way to remember that God collapsed Babylon, the enemies of God are described as people who enslave others to make a name for themselves or who use the life that they have to build their own kingdom. But at the end of this story in Genesis 11, God scatters the people. He humbles the proud. And to the Hebrew reader, God remembered his people and they could finally return home. So let me recap real quick. The first three chapters of Genesis, God set set the universe into motion to describe how God relates to his people, even as we chose sin and brokenness. But beginning in Genesis 4, as we started this mini-series with Cain and Abel, we're we're given this question that, that Cain asks, or that Cain responds to God when God asked where his Abel's God asked Cain where his brother was, and he said, am I my brother's keeper? Is somebody else my response? Why do I care about him? Why should I care about somebody else? All of these seemingly disconnected stories from Genesis 1 to 11, the stories that we tell our kids, these stories lay the foundation for God's community that will unfold in the rest of Scripture and that we celebrate every week. These are stories about how God's people relate to the world and relate to each other. 
And with this layered story of the Tower of Babel, we must learn not to be like the enemies of God who build empires for themselves. But as we'll see in the next chapter, that we're God's called out people to be a blessing to the world. Because God knows that wherever there is an empire building a name for itself, there is oppression. God cares so much about the oppressed people in this world that he constantly reminds, now us, but reminds his people of them throughout scriptures. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Psalm 146.7 says, Whoever executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets prisoners free. God is constantly warning about oppression, and it takes on different forms in our world today. But God is constantly described as a refuge for people who have been crushed. And God's opinion is very clear throughout all of Scripture that he is on the side of the oppressed. So do you feel crushed? Have you ever felt smushed by life? Do things feel like they're just so unfair for you? God is on the side of people who have bricks placed on their backs. When we use our power, there's two sides to this, right? When we use, when people use power at someone else's expense, God hates it. When people use the uh, dominion that God gave us at creation to lord over others, God hates it. We're meant to use what we have for the flourishing of all people. In Mark's gospel, I think he says to preach the gospel to all of creation. All of creation. So I wonder, Jesus is in this place. Jesus is within you. God's presence fills all parts of creation, in my opinion. If, but if God walked in, to Wyoming Harbor, if he walked into our gathering today, what would he see? What would he ra'a us building? Whose name would he find us working to make famous? As your pastor, I'm humbled to say that I believe with all my heart that this is a community, a group of people who don't just want to make the name of Wyoming Harbor famous. Feel no pressure from me to do that. I believe that this is a community centered on Jesus, who trusts that Jesus is the ultimate presence of God among us. It's Jesus' name that we are building for his church. It's Jesus 
we believe the words that he said about himself when he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind. He set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus demonstrated his power, the power of his name by healing the many, the masses of individuals in his time. He gave a preview 2,000 years ago when he walked on the planet of what is to come and with what the people who saw Jesus walk on this planet embody with what all of Scripture said about him, they could not deny what they saw. They had to shout his name until their last breath. They shouted the name of Jesus as the Savior of the world. And, and many of them gave their lives for that message because there was another empire called the Roman Empire that wanted nothing more than to squish, oppress, and get rid of this gospel of this new king. But against all the odds, this message of a God who saves, of a God who's on the side of broken people, a God who redeems anyone who will call in his name, we're here, 2,000 years later, talking about it. We join the Christians all over the world, many who are facing the same sort of oppressive things that even God's people did back in these stories. We worship the same God who sets the oppressed free. And as we approach the communion table, we do so remembering who God is and what he cares about. This spiritual practice that we're about to take together is something that Jesus gave to his followers on a Thursday night. It was one night. <laughs> it was one meeting with a couple of people that represented Jesus being the savior of the universe that's been passed down through the generations over hundreds of years in communities all over the world, and we here get to celebrate that. Jesus is who he says he is. No matter what you feel like is crushing you today, that will not last forever. I pray that the church, we can do everything within our power to see those things get off of your back. And some things, yeah, they won't go away in this lifetime. But we are presented with a story of a God who's victorious from beginning to end. Jesus is going to come back. And all of those words, comforting the oppressed, prisoners released, we'll see the fullness of that someday. And we get glimpses of it now. So communion is a way to say again that we believe God is on the side of broken people. And that God sent his son Jesus to do just what he said, to proclaim freedom to the prisoner. Do you feel like you're a prisoner today? To give sight to the blind. Do you feel blind today? To set the oppressed free. Do you feel that weight? Or to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe this is that year for you. So we remember 
the power of the name of Jesus at this table. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says this, For what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do so in remembrance of me. Jesus was crushed. He joined in our suffering. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our way of remembering Jesus shares in the suffering and pain, but what happened a few days later? He resurrected. That's a foreshadow of what's going to happen to you and I. All of our hope is anchored in who Jesus is and the character of God that we get to see unfold in these beautiful stories that he has come to set you free. Let me pray, and then when I'm done praying, you can come forward and uh, take this communion as a reminder of all this. Um, The little cuppy things are gluten-free. There's a little plastic piece on top. You can get the wafer out of the top. Otherwise, feel free to come and dip the bread into the juice to remember that Jesus has come for you. Let's pray. Uh, Thank you for that good news, Lord, that we can see from these early stories leads all the way up to Jesus. And in Jesus leads all the way up to today. That we're not just talking about old, dusty stories thousands of years ago, but we're talking about a God who is ever-present. You're our ever-present help in our time of need. That's your word to us, that you are our ever-present help in our time of need. So I pray as we take this reminder, Lord, that when we take the bread and take the juice, that we'll remember that you are our help. You are our redeemer. You are the deliverer. You're the one who gives us hope. So I pray if anybody in here feels crushed today, if anybody in here feels smushed, they feel defeated, they feel broken, they feel like they've lost it all, that you would give them hope to know that they have victory. The story's not over. You are not done. You're not done. You haven't come back yet to conclude the story. And when you do, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be the ultimate victory, the resurrection of our bodies, Lord. So I pray through all this moment that your spirit would come, the power of your name would dwell within our hearts and our minds to know that Jesus has overcome And by believing in that, Lord, we can be free too. It's in Jesus' name, amen.